Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are back to discuss Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female, written by civil rights activist Frances Beale in 1969. Last time we talked about some history of the civil rights movement um, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the birth of the Black Power Movement. We talked about Frances Beale, the author, and we set this speech and the experiences of Black Americans in the context of U.S. history with America's practice of enslaving African Americans for centuries and how that continues to shape our culture, often in ways that American citizens and especially white Americans don't realize. So today we're going to dive back into this text um, and highlight some more really important parts and have some more um, fascinating and enlightening conversations with our amazing guest, Raina Clay McKay. Welcome back, Raina. Hi, Amy. Do you want to just dive right in, Raina? Absolutely. Uh, You asked me to take a couple of things from the or quotes from the piece and so that we could talk about them more clearly. And so my first one is, let me just say this is going to be a direct quote. So from Francis Beale, and it says, quote, we live in a highly industrialized society and every member of the black nation must be as academically and technologically developed as possible. To wage a revolution, we need competent teachers, doctors, nurses, electronic experts, chemists, biologists, physicists, political scientists, and so on and so forth. Black women sitting at home reading bedtime stories to their children are just not going to make it, unquote. So I think it's super important to... um, once again, let's talk about society, right? We mm-hmm. have we've been talking our last time we talked about society and its structure and how it um, has systemically um, created itself or been built upon the enslavement and the oppression of a certain group of people, right? So mm-hmm. um, when you do that, it, less of those people are in positions of power in positions of education. Less of those people are sitting at the table just because of the way the structure and the system is structured, right? Mm -hmm. Education is a door that opens opportunity. And so when you become educated and when you strive for education and when you place yourself in all of those positions, you know, from teachers to scientists to electronic experts to biologists to physicists into political positions, right? You are at least right outside the door of the boardroom, if not sitting at the table of the boardroom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. representation matters. I know that's a um, a pat statement, I guess, in a way, but it's true. Mm-hmm. If you are there, what you are not only doing is helping the people who are in positions of power see that you are capable, see that you are competent, and see that you represent all of the amazing facets of the rest of your group of people, right? But what it also does is it allows you to bring a perspective that is different. And diversity of thought is what helps us move forward. And Mm -hmm. so you add that diversity of thought and that diversity of experience into the places where we are making the decisions. Mm-hmm. You know? That's, yeah. That's really neat to hear you say that. What I'm, I, when I, when I read this whole essay by Beale and it, and it came through in that quote that you just read too, 
it's 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 a revolution that she's advocating and it feels very like to me i would even say the word aggressive i i feel mm-hmm. like it's like oh yeah oh, i yes. mean she uses the word like black nation and yeah. to wage a revolution oh yeah and so she's to me in that quote i feel like she's saying like we can't waste any it almost feels like you know the communist manifesto or something where yep. she's like all the workers unite right like all yep. the black people need to and this is the time of you know like we talked about Stokely Carmichael saying black power black black mm-hmm. panthers were you know it this was really getting gaining momentum and but what i hear from you is like advocating the same thing but in a gentler Yes. Tone. Yes. Would you say? Am I understanding you correctly? You like, are one hundred percent understanding me. Yep. Okay. Let us do this. So the next quote from Francis Beale is, quote, I have briefly discussed the economic and psychological manipulation of black women, but perhaps the most outlandish act of oppression in modern times is the current campaign to promote sterilization of non-white women in an attempt to maintain the population and power imbalance between the white haves and the non-white have-nots. These tactics are but another example of the many devious excuse me, schemes that the ruling elite attempt to perpetuate on the black population in order to keep itself in control. It has recently come to our attention that a massive campaign for so-called birth control is presently being promoted not only in the underdeveloped non-white areas of the world, but also in black communities here in the United States. However, what the authorities in charge of these programs refer to as birth control is in fact nothing but a method of outright surgical genocide. Threatened with the cutoff of reliefs, some black welfare women have been forced to accept the sterilization procedure in exchange for a continuation of welfare benefits. Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City performs these operations on many of its ward patients whenever it can convince the women to undergo this surgery. Mississippi and some of the other southern states are notorious for this act. Black women are often afraid to permit any kind of necessary surgery because they know from bitter experience that they are more likely than not to come out of the hospital without their insides. And then both salpingectomies and hysterectomies are performed, unquote. And and the salpingectomy, Reina, is that oh, the, yeah. like a that's tubal? T- tubal. Yeah, that's a tubal okay. ligation. That's tying your tubes. And then hysterectomies is the act of removing your uterus. So both of which would um, uh, make you unfertile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without their consent. Without just... the, so it used to be without their consent, and then it moved right. into um, it moved into a um, significant pressure of mm. doing it while they were in the hospital. Um, think about when you were immediately postpartum, right? Mm-hmm. You were tired. You didn't make mm-hmm. sound decisions, right? And so then you would get um, pressured then. Sometimes, um, sadly, uh, the salpingectomies or the tubal ligations were being performed when they were having C-sections. Um, so mm. they were already there. And so they just cut the tubes. The oh one good gosh. thing before we continue to talk about... Um, the atrocities that continue to happen. I do want to make a caveat for the listeners in that now um, I am very proud of um, its ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, It's been probably at least 10 years, if not more. um, And I don't know the exact date, so don't quote me on that. But they have changed their practices to where you cannot perform a tubal ligation on 
any woman, um, unless it has been discussed previously prior to their um, inpatient hospital delivery. Mm, so good. a lot of times we do it just because it makes it easy, right? They're already sure. impatient. So we do it within 24 hours after they delivered, et cetera, et cetera, which makes mm-hmm. just everything a lot easier for everybody. But you cannot in real time ask yeah. the woman and make that decision. And I am right. so proud of the society. They realized the disparities that were happening. They realized the atrocities that were happening. And they said, we are going to put a set of practices and policies in place in order to try to prevent this from happening good so yeah so good for good on them like yeah great on them so i wanted to caveat that before we continue to talk yeah well you i i mean we were talking a little bit about this before and i you were talking about some other examples in the yeah in the medical in medical history i guess so yeah that brings up actually something that happened um a conversation that i had recently where i was talking with um a black friend of mine and just it just came up and I just casually mentioned like, oh, are you going to get your vaccine? And she, and she was just like, oh, I'm black. I don't get vaccines. And I was like, oh, I mean, I've read about that like in the New York Times yeah. or like I've I've heard about that. But that was the first person that I've known personally that just said it straight out like that. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was too. I don't know. I didn't ask. I didn't feel like it was my place or something. I just didn't feel comfortable asking. But I was like. Is it because of the history with the medical establishment that you truly like feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable or afraid mm-hmm. going into the doctor? And so I wanted to ask you about that because I know it's there's this there was this campaign of forced sterilization and there have been other things, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there what are. are some other things? There that- are. So medical it's actually a term called medical apartheid and it's a real thing. It's basically the use of medicine in order to um, control a certain community. Um, mm. And we have a really um, ugly history of that. Uh, historically, probably the biggest um, or most popular or most well-known um, experiment was with the Tuskegee Airmen um, in the early 1900s, uh, where they um, basically gave black, uh, black veterans, think of this, these are active military so the people that we are supposed to uphold and mm-hmm. um, and honor the most in our society, maybe save mothers, right? Yeah. <laughs> our, our veterans and our active military, right? And they actually gave them and or did not treat them for syphilis um, in order to see what would happen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So as just human, like, experiments, guinea pigs. Human like- guinea pigs. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's like Nazi level. It is Nazi level. It's worse than Nazi. Well, it's on the same part of Nazi level because what Nazis oh did goodness. to the Jewish um, internment um, right. population was just despicable. But this is the same thing. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. my gosh. So if you think about that, right, that is what my people, and I use that term in order to say black people, know it's yeah. not even think. They know what the medical establishment did to us. So no wonder my people are distrustful of the medical environment. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. So here we go. Quote again. 
Another major differentiation is that the white woman's liberation movement is basically middle class. Very few of these women suffered the extreme economic exploitation that most black women are subjected to day by day. It is not an intellectual persecution alone. The movement is not a psychological outburst for us. It is quite real. We as black women have got to deal with the problems that the black masses deal with, for our problems in reality are one and the same, unquote. So um, this is what I really think is kind of the crux of the matter and the reason why the stereotype of the angry black woman exists and persists um, in modern day society, because this is our life day in, day out. And I feel like if you are not angry as a black woman, you are exhausted. And if you are exhausted, you can't function. And if you don't function, then society has the excuse to chew you up and spit you out. And then you have, quote, justified, unquote, systemic racism. Wow. Yeah. If everybody's just so tired, is this what you're saying, Raina? That if you just get to that point of fatigue, then it's like, then the system can never change because people are just like, I'm tired of fighting. It's almost easier to just be like, forget it. Just go along with it. It's just too hard to change. And then it doesn't. And that's why it takes so long, partly. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, it's completely right. So I just, yeah, it's really hitting me. Just that problem of asking black women to align themselves with white women with white mm-hmm. women instead of with their own sons their own yep. brothers yep whose lives are in danger so yep yeah is that an accurate reading of beale and and i think it's a completely accurate reading i think it is super hard because not that i how do i put this so the experience of being a woman is universal right? Whether you're white, black, Asian, etc. I think there are certain things that we could um, sit down and we would find more commonality than not. Mm-hmm. But um, the experience of being a minority woman, as particularly for me, being a black woman, is completely different than mm-hmm. my white female friends. Like, as women society and well let's just talk about structural misogyny right as women we are um we have been uh relegated to certain roles um and this is a global non-specific thing but in general Mm -hmm. white women have been looked as the mother eve you know the madonna and child um they have been in some ways relegated to being the help me the wife the mother but always, um, usually I should say protected and, um, protected and honored. Not that Mm -hmm. we, we all have a lot of things like we are tried, we're tried to, um, our bodies are not allowed to be our own, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to talk about that for just a second, but in general, they've been relegated to this mother Eve Madonna role, right? The perfect housewife and mother, um, Asian women, um, I was just talking to a dear friend of mine who's Asian. Um, there has been a um, almost a subservient global picture put on them. Black women 
in general have been relegated to the role of either servant, i.e. housekeeper, right? Or Mm -hmm. servant in a physicality way, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Black women, black daughters, black girls, and there are multiple um, psychological studies and sociological studies that have proven this, are um, adultified um, approximately five years earlier than black women, than white women are. So Mm. you take a seven, eight, nine year old black girl and she is treated um, and looked upon as a sexual object at that age as compared to maybe 14 for a white young lady. Mm. Yeah. So there is a very, very deep and insidious difference in Mm. our commonality as black and white women. Mm, That's so. Yes. Wow. That's such a, uh, again, it's, it's a powerful example of illustrating what we have in common. And then right. the, the increased severity, though, like the layers right. that women of color have on top of, of our universal experience. experience. You have other layers. Right. And yeah. then because the white woman is generally seen as the person to protect if you think right. about that in society, right? right? Yeah. Um, and the white man, and I'm not going to say the white man because I'm married to a beloved white man. I know yeah. so many wonderful white men, but the white man structurally, okay, right. has done a right. really, really good job of deflecting their power struggle and their issues onto the black man and saying the black man is who you should be afraid of. Not me. Right. Right. The black man. And society has latched onto that and said, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that is. Yeah. So that is where that conflict comes in, because I know that my black men are no threat to any white woman, Mm -hmm. you know, but society tells everybody that they are. So it's super hard to be able to say, yep, I'm going to join your cause. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be able to do that. And then knowing that in doing that, part of it is going to be, you have to dismantle the vilification of your black men. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is a great, really concise way of explaining one really fundamental aspect of intersectionality, right? Yep. Of why it is different. And and I mean, I mentioned Emmett Till yeah. before, which was that tragic um, example of where like, yeah, just the, the fallacy in thinking that that women, quote unquote, women, all women are the ones who experience oppression equally. Yep. When if it's a like you just described, if it's a white woman who is perceived as in danger of a black man that man then that white woman can marshal the forces of white supremacy and they will come to her defense. you know what they perceive yeah. as their her defense and with tragic tragic i mean absolutely horrible consequences for whatever black man happens to be in the area and can be accused of being a threat to her right oh absolutely so it's just yeah it's much more complicated than then I just maybe yeah no it think. is it's totally complicated and and I want to always bring it back to we are still living in this exact same situation yeah you know yeah 
Well, thank you, Raina, for Absolutely. all of this. And this brings us to the end of yeah. of the this essay. There's so many important points that we actually didn't even have time to cover. So I would <laughs> say to listeners, huh? <laughs> really, yeah, like look it up and um, and read this essay. But I want us uh, maybe as we end to just share a takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll share mine first sure. and then have you to share mm-hmm. the final thoughts yeah. for today. So the, the, the passage I want to read last is this one from Frances Beale. She says, quote, the black community and black women especially must begin raising questions about the kind of society we, we wish to see established. The new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of the person who was the low man on the totem pole. End quote. So for me, as again, as a as a white woman, I want to extend that challenge to all listeners. Frances Beale says you know, to the black community, to black women especially, I want to extend that challenge, to, especially to listeners who are white and listeners who are men um, and just say it again. Quote, the new world that we are struggling to create must destroy oppression of any type. The value of this new system will be determined by the status of the person who was the low man on the totem pole. End quote. And this, it, it reminded me of the um, that thought experiment that we talked about on our episode a long time ago on Olympe de Gouges, um Declaration of the Rights of Woman called the Veil of Ignorance. And this is a, a philosophical thought experiment where, you know, we we kind of see ourselves as um, not having gone to earth yet. So we're all, you know, on the side of a veil before we're born, which will sound familiar to um, Mormon <laughs> listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this is, it's actually a real thought experiment where they say like, okay, we're going to all go through a veil and we don't know where we're going to be born. You could be born into any circumstance. And so we're going to come up with a system that that we say is a just society. And the way to measure whether it's a just society is if you would be equally happy and excited to inhabit anybody's life. And so I just want to invite listeners to think, if you're a man, would you be excited to be born a girl? Would you have all the opportunities and encouragement that you had as a boy? If you are white, are you confident that if you were born black, if you were born Asian, if you were born in a different as a as a racial minority in the United States, are you confident that you would have all the opportunities and safety that you had growing up white? If you grew up in a family of means, would you be just as happy being born in an inner city or rural Mississippi or Appalachia. If not, then we do not have a just society yet. And as Beale says, we must begin raising questions about the kind of society we wish to see established. And that that's all of our responsibility to create the world that we want to see. And it has to destroy oppression of any type. Um, so I want to end with that quote and also with Fannie Lou Hamer, whom I've been studying for my thesis. And, and she said, nobody's free until everybody's, everybody's free. free. <laughs> so that was my takeaway. What was what's a takeaway for you, Raina? Well, I first want to um, 
applaud and applaud you and the work you're doing in this way, because I think that this is where it starts. And I think when we understand that nobody is free until everybody is free, um, and we really, really take that to heart, and we really, really go, what is it that I can do to um, just move the needle even an inch? Um, that's where change starts, you know? Um mm. But I think my general takeaway, I love this piece. Um, like we talked about earlier, to some people it may sound aggressive, but it's the inner workings of my aggressive soul, you know? And I love mm -hmm. that somebody said mm -hmm. it out loud, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I honor um, Beale in that she uh, used her, took her inside thoughts and made them uh, outside thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I think it truly should be like um, a quote unquote guidebook to society, like <laughs> just straight up. Mm -hmm. Because you could think, even if you took out the Black woman's experience in this, you could apply it to women and our determination to break the glass ceiling. You know what I mean? Like, let's mm -hmm. get aggressive. Let's wage war on this system. You know what I mean? In that way. So, um, but I do, I really truly think that she is saying if nobody is free, then if, you know, not everyone is free, then none of us are free. Um, but in terms of just taking it back to why you had me on here in the first place was um, the double jeopardy of being black and female. I have got to say that I have learned that it is both a good double jeopardy and it is a bad double jeopardy. And the bad parts of the double jeopardy are what give me the backbone that I have. Let me put it that way. Nobody should have to have the experiences I've had, but without those experiences, I'm not the person that I am. And um, it has not moved me into the places um, where I currently walk. And I am grateful for that in that I get the chance to, in my small corner of the world, to actively show people that we, as in Black people and as in female, are nothing to be threatened by, that we are just as good just as capable and just as multifaceted and dimensional as our majority group, you know? Mm. And I think, um, so Elaine Welteroth, I love her from Project Runway. Now she's, I think, on The View or something like that. I honestly will mm. completely admit I've never watched her on The View, but she um, is fantastic. She makes my timeline, my Instagram timeline. She breaks it up. I usually have things about houses and kids, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so I follow her just because she makes it so colorful. And she is also mm. a very um, powerful young voice in um, the Black community today. Mm. And... Um, but she just the other day posted this and I kind of am taking it as my current motto in life. She said, quote, when you exist in spaces that weren't built for you, sometimes just being you is the revolution, unquote. And that's my takeaway. Is, I love it. You know what I mean? Like we talk about the things we need to change. We talk about... Um, that we need to dismantle and restructure society, right? But some of the ways that we do it is just by being you and just by being in the places that weren't made for you. Wow. 
Well, that is the perfect way to end end the episode. We'll just let that quote stand and and your brilliant insights, Raina. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure as always, um, friend. 